his sermon. This passage, verses 1 through 6, sort of jump out at us. And it does so for a few reasons. First, it's a well-known passage. Virtually everybody knows that somewhere in Scripture it says, do not judge. And second, it's a misunderstood passage. And third, it jumps out at us because it doesn't seem to fit the context of the sermon. It, it sort of just sits there, and you're not quite sure why it's there. And, and since the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has given instructions on how to fast, and then instructions on where to lay up treasure, and on anxiety and worry, some advice. And then after this section... He gives us the golden rule in verse 12. And before that, ask and it shall be given to you. And so we see these well-known and respected moral axioms. And right in the middle of that is this command and these few verses that tell us to stop judging. To make it even more obscure and seemingly out of place, it seems to run contrary to several other passages of Scripture. For example, in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus tells his followers, judge with a right judgment. This idea goes back to Deuteronomy. God says to Israel, hear the case between you and your brothers and judge between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Paul even prayed that the Philippians would grow in knowledge and discernment so they could approve, they could judge what is excellent. And so I want to first establish how this fits in the context and then we will analyze what is being said and apply it to our hearts. And there are two reasons that Jesus moves into the topic of judging others. Remember, he is establishing himself as the king. And in doing that, he is contrasting himself with the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had established their own righteousness, and with that, their own kingdom in a sense. A kingdom based on works and traditions. And so consequently, they rejected Jesus as the, king, as the king and the kingdom he was offering, which was only available to the humble and the repentant. You remember, of course, infamously, they cried out at Jesus' death, we will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. And so in this sermon, he has presented something very foreign to the Pharisees. He's called them out for not belonging to him or his kingdom. And this section does much of the same, perhaps even more directly. The Pharisees, by this point in the sermon, were judging Christ and finding him to be inadequate. He can't be the Messiah. That was their judgment. He didn't live up to their standards. And it's interesting what Jesus does. Rather than arguing with them, Rather than giving them all of the reasons why he is the true king and this is the true kingdom, he throws the whole system out. He throws their entire system of judgment out and rebukes it. And there's a second point worth remembering as well. He is telling his disciples 
not to be like the Pharisees and how they judge others. They, the entire rubric that they had for making judgment was askew. But, but of course, as you well know, the Pharisees only did what fallen men always do. The Pharisees were not the first to invent a works righteousness system, and they're not the last to use a works righteousness system. Every false religion, every other gospel is a works righteousness system. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths in Galatians to rebuke every false gospel. He says it's not a true gospel. You can't have works and law with the true gospel. And so the disciples of Christ, and certainly Christians today, can fall into the same system of judgment that Jesus is warning against. And that is why I think it appears here in the context of the sermon. Remember, Jesus has just given instructions on anxiety and worry, and now he reminds us not to judge. The reason is because Overly critical judgmentalism and anxiety stem from the same heart cause. It is the root, the same sickness that manifests itself in different systems. See, anxiety stems from a personal insecurity and a lack of trust in God's providence to meet your basic needs. Judgmentalism stems from personal insecurity and a lack of trust in God's ability to judge fairly. Anxiety is insecurity pointed inward. Hypocritical judgment is insecurity pointed outward. Both are fundamentally a lack of trust in God's sovereign providential running of the universe. You think that he can't or you think that he will not provide what you need or you think that he can't or that he will not deal with others fairly. See, not everyone is lent to worry And some people struggle more with anxiety and worry than others. But nobody is sinless. You might manifest the same heart problem in a different way. And so if you thought that last week's message was particularly helpful for somebody else, then this one is probably for you. With that, let's look at the text. The the command is simply this, judge not that you be not judged. That, That word judge is where we get our English word criticize, and that is really the sense here. Don't criticize. It is not a blanket condemnation against all forms of judgment. Remember, he is contrasting true righteousness with pharisaical works-based righteousness. What Jesus is condemning is the undue, hasty criticizing of others. That is really the idea here. It is aimed at those people who are overly critical, who have often something negative say to say before they really get to know somebody or to know the situation and think through what it is they might dislike or disagree with. There are other places in Scripture, of course, where the idea of judgment is not used in that way. When we speak of God judging the world or Christians being knowledgeable and discerning, Christians being thoughtful, analyzing things, and weigh out and judge what is proper and fitting. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. That involves, that presupposes a certain level of judgment. 
Here it means critical judgment, hypocritical judgment, criticize. And I have to tell you as well, don't judge does not mean don't think. It doesn't mean don't evaluate. It doesn't mean don't analyze. And unfortunately, that is how many people have taken this verse and have used it to avoid any and all criticisms of their doctrine or their life. John Stott rightly points out that this command, quote, is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous, unquote. Another worthwhile point about Jesus' imperative here is that it is in the sense of a present action. That is to say that, that Jesus is not saying, hey, don't you do what the Pharisees do, although that is certainly a valid implication of the text. He's not warning against forming a habit, as though he's saying that some judgment is okay, but we want to balance that. We don't want to be too excessive in our judgment. A little bit's okay, but don't form the habit. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking of a present action. In other words, what he's saying is stop judging. Stop judging. Stop doing it. Don't do it, but stop doing it. In other words, Jesus thought that his followers were already doing this. And if he thought that the disciples of his day were already doing it, there's a good chance he thinks you're doing it also. Good chance. Let, let me give you three ways. Let me give you three ways that we are guilty of this sin. And then we will look more closely at the, te uh, the text to discern how to stop judging this aberrant form of judgment, criti criticalism. The, the first way that we are guilty of this is, is what you might call a general critical spirit. This is the most basic and general idea. It, it's just this pervading spirit, this pervading attitude whereby a person is inclined to criticize someone before anything else. Just a general sense that, that somebody is very jealous to show how somebody else is not quite as smart as they thought they were or as good as they suggested. The, the, the spirit is very easy to manifest and it's even easier to ignore. We do it all the time and we get good at covering up. We offer an undue criticism we critique somebody unfairly and then we, and we sort of backtrack a little bit and say, well, you know, but, but it really, he's a great guy. And, and really, I do love her as a sister in the Lord, but, you know, it's all these other things. Now, of course, you know that your critique is already out there. The damage is done. Your critique worked. And now you're just trying to save face. James said, do not grumble against one another. That, that grumbling carries the same idea. Don't criticize. He, he says in chapter 4, James chapter 4, do not speak evil against one another. Paul puts it this way in Romans. Romans chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What, what Paul is talking about is a more knowledgeable, more mature brother in the faith welcoming an immature brother. 
And what Paul is warning against is doing that for the purpose of criticizing his immaturity or, or looking to elevate yourself by simply welcome, welcoming one to change their mind about some issue, bringing them in to quarrel with them. And I hasten to point out that the context of Romans chapter 14 is not doctrinal matters, but matters of conscience. We are, of course, to teach immature people. We aren't just to criticize them and pass judgment when it comes to matters of Christian liberty. Oh, we're back up and running? Fantastic. All right. Well, I'm going to keep going, and and hopefully we get it all in, in one audio shot, if not in one video shot. All right, that's the first way that that we sometimes violate this command, a general critical spirit. The second way we, we judge is we gossip. See, a gossip is very often a speck seeker. A gossip is looking everywhere to find something to criticize. They're going everywhere to try to find dirt on somebody else. They're busybodies. They're always making sure they're in the know. They always want to be at the center of all of the things going on so that the moment somebody messes up, they're Johnny on the spot to criticize it, notice it, and tell somebody else about it. And again, we become very adept at this, and we become very good at covering this up. We sometimes call our gossip our prayer chain. We, we just need to know about somebody else's sin so that, so that we can better pray for them, of course. See, the general critic waits for people to come to them and doesn't always deal with fact, with truth. They tend to stretch the truth and be dishonest in their critiques. The gossip doesn't wait for people to come to them. They go out and tell people. They, they tend to deal more with fact, but that isn't the issue here. Paul, Paul, you'll remember writing to Timothy, tells Timothy not to enroll the younger women to receive care from the congregation, the younger widows, because 1 Timothy 5.13, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies. That is the judgmental spirit, the gossip. This is the person to whom Jesus was speaking. They're always running around doing nothing useful but keeping themselves busy with ensuring that everyone knows everybody else's faults. And so there is the general critic, and then there is the gossip critic. And thirdly, there's the doctrinal critic. These are the people who are in the pew, certainly and only to find something wrong with the sermon. They're there to make sure that the pastor doesn't quite get that verse right or is using the wrong Bible translation. They're there to find some minute point of doctrine that's the only thing they hear in the entire message. And and these types of critics tend to wrap it up in very theological, deep language, how they are preserving the gospel of grace and so on and everything else. Pastors and people who regularly teach perhaps find this easier than most to fall into. Because every time you hear a message, you can always say, that's not quite right. That's not the way I would have done it. I would have emphasized this. I would have really brought that point home. 
when somebody else doesn't, doesn't quite live up to your level of doctrinal superiority. And the, these types of critics often pass general judgments on non-doctrinal issues. They couch it in doctrinal language. Now again, I don't want you to misunderstand what Scripture is teaching. This is not to suggest that we can or even should be lax in enforcing doctrinal standards. We must discriminate. The strength of the congregation is dependent on the leadership and membership who have drunk deeply at the fountain of God's word and who are therefore able to be discriminating. We are not to support error. Watch this. We are not to support error, but we are to be most careful in regard to our attitude to those who appear to us to be erring. Donald Gray Barnhouse offers some helpful insight into trying to discern whether you are defending the truth of Scripture and the clarity of the gospel or you're just being judgmental. He offers two questions. One, does such criticism arise because there is profound grief over sin? Does such criticism arise because there is profound grief over sin? Question two, is the critic moved by the fact that God is outraged and at the great wrong that is done? And then he offers these helpful words, quote, too often the critic has no sensitivity for sin at all. If his accusations of his neighbor are discovered to be false and the neighbor is innocent, the critic looks for something else to criticize. Nor is it because of a great love for the neighbor that the critic makes his accusation and carries his tales. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not expose sin. Since we see that there are no positive motives for the criticism, and since the Lord says that the critic is a hypocrite, it follows that the critic is moved by envy, jealousy, selfishness, and all other evil motives that put the poison sack of the asp under the human tongue, unquote. Has your brother erred doctrinally? Has he misunderstood Holy Scripture? Do you know somebody who has refused to accept the plain meaning of the text because it does not fit with his narrative? Then I remind you of the apostle's word to the Galatians, who were true believers who but were badly, badly bewitched by a heretical gospel. It was foreign to the one that they heard and were saved under. This is what Paul wrote to them. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So how do you know when you're being a general critic? How do you know when you're being a gossip and not genuinely seeking their good? How do you know when you're defending the truth of Scripture or, or just being a doctrinal critic? Well, I gave you two questions from Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, let me give you two more from the text. That by way of introduction. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. The first question to ask yourself, verses 1 and 2, are you prepared to be judged by your own standard? Are you prepared to be judged by your own standard? Look what Jesus says. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
The idea is simple. Whatever standard you are using to judge others is the standard that is going to be used on you. And there are two ways this is to be understood. The first is in reference to divine judgment. It is to say that God is the rightful judge and he will judge both others and you, but that his standard doesn't change. You are not so special as to invoke a more lenient plea deal with God. You, you are not so different from the very person you are criticizing. It's the same idea we saw back in chapter 6 when Jesus says, if you forgive others, then my Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then my Father will not forgive you. The, the idea is simple, that, that God executes impartiality and judgment, and he will judge you by the same standard you are seeking to impose on others. Or, or to put it bluntly, God will judge the one who criticizes. See, in, in reality, offering judgment in the place of God is blasphemous because it puts you in the position of God. This is exactly what false religions do. This is why at the top of every false religion is always a single person or group. Whether it's the Pope or Jim Jones or Joseph Smith, in all of these cases, the one at the top of the heap is the only one who can pass judgment. And in a lot of those cases, the, the, the followers of the religion don't even have access to the scripture or the holy books or the rules or the laws of that religion, and so they can't be judged by that content. This is why one of the key aspects of the Reformation was translating scripture into the common language. It was not to escape judgment, it was to put judgment in the hands of God, to say the people were not dependent to be judged by anything outside of the content of Scripture. And by offering judgment in the place of God, you have claimed to be God, and you have tried to make the people dependent on your verdict. Second, there's a measure of sarcasm here. There's a measure of sarcasm here. It's seen in verse 2. Those who are so quick to pronounce judgment and to criticize others often realize that they also are the victim of unfair, overly critical judgments. Look again to chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule. The idea is that you do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And what Jesus is saying is if you are the type of person who is overly critical, you will find it to be the case that people are going to be overly critical of you. So are you willing to ask yourself before you offer your critique, are you willing to be judged by the same standard? Are you willing to be judged by the same standard? Because Jesus is saying it's likely to happen. It's likely to happen. Or to use Pauline language, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. So you can ask yourself, before you criticize somebody else, would you want to be held under that microscope? Could you withstand the standard you are about to insist upon somebody else? If the answer is no, you might want to refrain from offering your opinion on the matter. It doesn't feel that good when somebody is always criticizing us, when somebody is always finding something to nag us about, something negative. So why would we do it for others? And Jesus, Jesus, by the way, is not condoning that. He's not saying it's okay to criticize somebody if, if they criticized you first. 
He's just saying it's likely to happen. Solomon does this all the time in Proverbs. He warns against adultery. Why? Because you are going to make the husband jealous and he's not going to stop to exact his revenge on you. He's not suggesting that's okay. He's just saying that's what's going to happen and so you should refrain from sin. The wise person refrains from sin. The wise person must refrain from criticizing others because he knows it is likely that he will be judged by the same unfair, ungracious, unreasonable standard that he holds to others. And I'd suggest to you that if you look at Scripture, God is not a stranger to irony in judgment. It is the adulteress who is said to be exposed by God. The prostitute is thrown on a bed of sickness. Samson walked after his eyes and the Philistines plucked them out. Don't be unduly harsh with someone else. God might chastise you in much the same way. There is a second question that we must ask ourselves before we offer a critique. And that is this, have you judged yourself first? Have you examined your own heart? See, Jesus at this point offers a a brief parable at this point to, to sort of illustrate his point. Suppose a man with a log in his eye was attempting to help a brother with a speck in his eye. I mean, the picture is, is ridiculous. If you had a log sticking out of your eye, you, you could not function properly. It, it is such an imposition on your face, and yet you think yourself able or in the place to offer help to your brother. And this is the essence of hypocritical judgment, is self-blindness. Self-blindness, a total inability to properly diagnose your situation. And because of your situation, the complete inability to actually help someone else. If you had a log in your face, you would not see clearly to help somebody with the speck that is in theirs. Even if they had a speck in their eye hypocritical judgments will render you useless when it comes to aiding in the sanctification of those around you. This is meant to get his followers to to see the obvious. The Pharisees were masters at this. That the Pharisees were so righteous, they would count their steps on the Sabbath to ensure that they weren't working. And then they had no trouble with an illegal sham of a trial that ran all through the night. To kill an innocent man. A man they knew was innocent. And then then they were suddenly righteousness again. Righteous again because they refused to put the blood money in the treasury. You can't have that. This is what we do. We, We become masters at seeing the faults in everybody else. But I want you to notice something about verse 5. Verse 5. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The implication is, is that there really is a speck there. There really is a speck in your brother's eye, and you are to help him take it out. The hypocrite's sin is not in his inability to diagnose others. It is in his refusal and inability to diagnose himself. That's the point. There is a standard for the brother and a separate standard for me, which is why When you want to help a brother, you might want to pause, stop, and think to yourself, have I applied this standard to myself? 
The hypocrite criticizes to make themselves look good. The true Christian is to judge himself so that he is in a position to make others look good. I'm, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, love builds up. And again, chapter 13, it keeps no record of wrong. The emphasis is the same. True followers of Jesus are intent on making those around them look better, not worse. Perhaps it would not be an exaggeration to say that self-awareness might be one of the most important marks of Christian maturity. But the reason is, is that if you are self-aware, be, being self-aware always leads you back to the place of grace from God in our dealings with others. What I, what I mean by that is it, it doesn't come naturally to examine yourself. But, but Jesus is offering a reason to do just that before we examine somebody else. Because every single time with self-judgment comes this attitude of there but the grace of God go I. Let me give you one more motivation or more accurately, let me, let me give you an example of this. Every relationship that you have with a fellow man or woman is one where there is two wronged parties. In your marriage, you have wronged your spouse and they have wronged you. In every friendship you have, your friend has genuinely wronged you and you have genuinely wronged your friend. The same is true for parents and children. In other words, if you go looking for something to criticize, you will find it. You will find it. It will be there. However, the relationship that Jesus had with each one of his disciples was a relationship where only one side was an offended party. Jesus did not deny Peter, but Peter, Jesus. And yet, while Jesus rightly rebuked and corrected his friends, he was never overly critical. He never did anything to make them look worse or weaker than they were. When Peter doubts and began to sink, Jesus didn't criticize. He corrected and reached out his hand. He made Peter, in his weakness, look strong. See, if ever anybody had reason to be critical of another, it's Jesus, who never wronged anyone and yet was wronged by everyone. And that is true for each one of us. We have wronged Christ, but he has never wronged you. I have wronged Christ, and he has never wronged me. He sent the Spirit to intercede for us and to speak for us on our account. In other words, the Spirit and Christ don't criticize us to the Father. They exalt us. You know, I always wonder if, if I were Jesus, and God forbid, but at some point he's got to think, you know, Father, I, I, I really thank you for the people. I, I really, they're great, uh, but... I'm not sure if you've noticed, but they're kind of a rotten bunch. And the Spirit's thinking, you know, I, I've been trying to sanctify, just, I've been trying to sanctify that Caleb Simons character for like 15 or 20 years, and I haven't gotten very far. And I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not exactly working with the greatest stock down there. See, it doesn't do that. 
He doesn't do that. Rather, he covers our sins and he builds up and he strengthens us and encourages us and comforts us and so on. And then we come along and we need to aid in that process by genuinely helping our brother or sister with the speck in their eye. But we can only do that. We can only do that if we have evaluated and removed the log in our own. And so when you want to criticize someone, when you want to criticize someone, you can ask yourself if you want to be judged by that standard. And you can ask yourself whether you have judged yourself or not. And if the answers to those, the answers to those two questions will reveal if your critique of your brother is working with the Holy Spirit or against him. All right, let's close with this. That brings us to verse six. And we will let Jesus' final warning sum up our thoughts, sum up our thoughts. First, however, uh, when it comes to verse six, I want to offer something of a disclaimer of sorts. If you look this verse up in a a study Bible or or commentary, you are most likely going to see an interpretation that runs something like this. The, the, The pearls are the gospel, or some doctrinal truth, and and Jesus is saying not to offer the gospel to those who habitually reject it, the dogs, the swine. Well, that is true insofar as it goes, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't believe that's what he's saying, and there's, there's a few things worth noting. One is, after rebuking the disciples for being overly critical, Jesus turns around and calls some men dogs and swine, which of course he has the moral authority to do, but it does raise some interesting questions in the context. And a lot of commentators have recognized this and they've tried to lessen the force of what what was being said by pointing out that dogs was a derogatory term for Gentiles, for Gentiles or, or false teachers. And it's used that way. However, if it's a derogatory term for Gentiles, that contradicts the whole idea that the gospel is in view because Jesus is not saying, don't give the gospel to Gentiles. The second thing I noticed was the dogs turn and attack the person offering the judgment. But the standard interpretation has them rejecting the gospel, just trampling on the pearls, but not turning and attacking. If this is true, why would Jesus warn us about retaliation? In other words, the the warning of the proverb, the threat of the proverb is, is retaliation aimed at a person, not rejection aimed at the pearls and holy things. And, and thirdly, I'd point out that if this verse is about balancing a gospel presentation to uh, Gentiles or false teachers, people who, who reject the truth of scripture, then it has little, if anything, to do with the context in verses one and five. There's nothing in the context to define pearls or or dogs in in that way. And so I I would not insist on, on dogmatism about it, but what do I think is going on here? Well, let me tell you. I think what is going on is, is Jesus is summing up everything he has said to this point. He, and he's doing it in proverbial fashion. And there's some sarcasm here, just like we saw in verse 2, but it's amplified now. And and this wasn't uncommon for Jesus' teaching. You'll recall he said he came not to save sinners, but the righteous. But of course, the righteous who he's talking about there are the Pharisees who were not righteous at all. But they considered themselves righteous, and and Jesus is sarcastically agreeing with their own self-assessment. And I think that's what he's doing here. Look at what he says. Do not give dogs what is holy. 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs. This parallels his very first command, do not judge or stop criticizing. Do not judge. The idea is, is that the hypocrite to whom he is speaking has a very self-inflated view of his spiritual discernment. And, and, and moreover, we have seen he has a very low view of those whom he is judging. And so Jesus is sort of playing along with the hypocrisy, saying, oh yes, your judgments are so valuable, pearls and gold even, but, but don't give them to the lesser people because they will attack you. See, that is really what people are saying when they offer a, a hypocritical, overly critical judgment. You have a, inflated your own level of holiness and your own ability to appraise, and in the process, debased everyone else. And then he says, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And this parallels the phrase, that you be not judged. See, the idea is is that your judgment is going to come back around and bite you. Those dogs, as it were, are going to turn and attack you. One theologian paraphrases it this way. You think you have something holy and pearls to give. You think the dogs and swine will benefit from them. Listen. Keep them to yourself or you will pay because of miscalculation. In, in other words, in verse 1, Jesus offers a simple command. In verses 2 through 5, he explains the hypocrisy behind why he makes the command. And in verse 6, he offers us a clever, sarcastic, proverbial saying to reinforce the command not to judge. So the next time you want to criticize somebody, the next time you want to pass judgment, you can think to yourself, am I prepared to be judged by this standard? Am I prepared to be held to this standard? And you can ask yourself, have I taken the time to judge myself first? And dear friends, if the answer is no to either one of those questions, then you are wiser to keep your pearls to yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all of the things that you bring in life, and we thank you, Lord, that you chose us and that you justified us, that you declared us innocent on the basis of Christ's work, and we thank you that one day you will glorify us, that we will see you face to face. And Lord, we thank you that in between justification and glorification is this messy, inconsistent business called sanctification. And we thank you, Lord, that we get that opportunity to show your love and patience to each other, to people who are critical of us, and to people who we sometimes are tempted to be critical towards. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that we will be judged by the standard of judgment that we offer. We, help, we hope, Lord, that that would enable us to be patient with people, to be gracious, not to be unreasonable and ungracious, but to love them as you have exemplified your love for us. We pray, Lord, that we would seek Scripture and that we would hold people to the standard of Scripture and we would not misunderstand this to think that those are somehow secondary but that we would be patient and gracious. And I pray, Lord, that for myself and for everyone, that we would think, 
before we want to offer a criticism, have we done this to ourselves and would we be prepared for such? Help us to honor you in our dealings with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.